want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is found on page 892 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And as you turn, you know, it is a great joy and it's with great delight that we follow the Lord Jesus, but it is not without its difficulties. And throughout the course of history, there have been many accusations leveled against Christians. One of them uh, is found in ancient history about the nature of Christian, Christian practice on a regular basis. In his article entitled, Defending the Cannibals, the Christian historian David Cassell describes how many ancient politicians and historians were quite concerned with the bizarre behaviors of these so-called Christians and the regular practices that they engaged in. For example, Suetonius, who was a Roman writer and secretary to Emperor Hadrian, he was one of the first pagan writers to write about Christianity, and he said the things that he said in not a very positive light. He referred to Christians as a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Pliny the Younger, another Roman official, warned that the contagious superstition is not confined to the cities alone, but has spread its infection among the country villages. And Plutarch, who is a famous biographer, suggested that superstition was even worse than atheism. He said, the atheist is unmoved regarding divinity, whereas the superstitious people are moved as they ought not to be, and their minds are perverted. So what is the superstition that these historians refer to? Well, they highlight a number of different things, not the least of which was cannibalism. Some ancient commentators and historians were concerned that Christians were involved in some sort of weird, superstitious cannibalism. Why in the world would they think that? Many of you are Christians here this morning. Some of you are maybe considering Christianity. You're here, but you're not sure if you want to put your faith in Christ or not. I wonder how would you answer that question. Are Christians superstitious cannibals? And that leads us to our text for today. In John chapter 6, as we will read in just a moment, you see the basis for such a claim. But beyond that, and much more importantly than that, you will see an expression of how following the Lord Jesus in an ongoing sense will lead you to a much, much greater place in this life and beyond. So let me read John chapter 6, but before I do, starting at verse 48, let me remind you of what's happening. In this section of the Gospel of John, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. And then he describes to them that the feeding of the 5,000 of physical bread is really pointing to something greater, that he is the bread of life. And so we pick up in the middle of this long discourse in which Jesus is describing that he not, did not come just to give bread, but he came to be bread. And by being bread for people to nourish them, he gives them life, and eternal life even. And the, the discourse in its entirety is long. It's both very pointed and confrontational at certain parts and encouraging in other parts. And we pick up in a very interesting section of it, starting at verse 48. So this is Jesus speaking to the people in the synagogue after the miracle. And this is what he says. 
He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life, and he commands then that anyone who wants life eat his flesh and drink his blood if they wish to receive it. What is going on here? Is this a call to cannibalism? Hardly so. And to understand Jesus' words more fully, you need to consider the larger context of this passage and indeed the entire Gospel of John. And so this is what I want to do over the next number of minutes together for the remainder of our time. I want to divide our time into really three parts. Number one what this doesn't mean. <laughs> number two, what it does mean. And number three, why is it so important that Jesus communicates the words that he does in this fashion for us today? Why is it important for you today? And so let's start with number one. What, is this, what does this not mean? What it doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying that we are to eat his actual flesh and drink his actual blood. Nor do I believe he is referring to, as some people have otherwise positioned, that he is making some sort of reference to the Lord's Supper that's going to come, to the communion that we're even going to celebrate here today. I don't think he's talking about that. Now, I recognize that there are some in the room that grew up Catholic or maybe even identify as Catholic still, and my Catholic friends would would disagree with me on this. They believe that this is one of the main texts that points us to the fact that, in their estimation, Jesus transforms his, the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper into actual body and actual blood for you to consume. But I respectfully couldn't disagree more. I don't think Jesus is speaking of literal body and literal blood, and I don't think he's speaking of the sacrament or unique dispensing of grace here, I think he's talking about belief. And there are a number of reasons why. The first is the nature of metaphor. So as you read John 6 in its entirety, Jesus has been moving 
through a variety of forms of communication to people. He performs a miracle, and that's one form of communication. And then he speaks to them in the terms of metaphor, and that's another form of communication. And then he gives them some direct discourse and teaching, and now he's moving back into the realm of metaphor again. A metaphor is very simply when one thing or person is described by calling it another thing or person that shares similar characteristics. And so it's the characteristics between the two that link them together. And metaphors are often used to help us to understand something more clearly. We use metaphors all the time, whether we realize it or not. Sometimes in serious conversation and sometimes in jest. We, th we say things like, man, it's raining cats and dogs out there. Really? No, that's a metaphor. Or we say things like, that man, that football player, that linebacker, he is a beast. No, he's not actually a beast, but he has many of the characteristics of a beast, and that's how he made it into the NFL. Or we say things like, my child is a couch potato. Or Elvis would say, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And on and on and on. We use metaphors all the time to describe the realities of life. And in using metaphors, it gives us a different angle, a different edge, a different, um, a different nuance to what is actually happening here. And so Jesus is using metaphors. He isn't saying that his physical body turns into bread when he says, I am the bread of life. He is saying that the effect of belief in me has similar nourishing, life-giving characteristics that bread does to your body. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying that people should literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. But he is saying that believing in him has similar characteristics. The act of believing in him has similar characteristics to the act of eating. And so he's giving us a vivid word picture of what this looks like. Here's another reason why. I don't think that it refers to literal flesh and blood, nor to the Lord's Supper. The second reason is because there's no mention of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John to this point, nor any practice of it in the Gospel of John at all. In fact, John is the only of the four Gospels that doesn't have the Lord's Supper in it. And he uses, in the other Gospels, a phrase, a particular phrase in the Lord's Supper. You, you hear us say it every month here at Old North when we practice the Lord's Supper. Jesus said to them, take and eat. This is my body given for you or broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And here, Jesus is using a different phrase. He's not talking about body. He's saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's not talking about body. He's talking about flesh. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal, that difference. But when you look at the Gospel of John in its entirety, you see that the idea of Jesus being flesh to them is significant. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But the third reason why I don't think he's referring to the Lord's Supper or to literal eating, is because the physical act of eating and drinking to give eternal life, as it says here, unless one eats and drinks, they will not have life, or unless they do eat and drink, whoever feeds will have life. The physical act of eating and drinking 
to receive eternal life is contradictory to the rest of the Bible. <laughs> it's contradictory to the rest of the gospel, and it's even contradictory to this passage. Because Jesus says in verse 29, what? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And so Jesus is using this vivid imagery of eating flesh and drinking blood to talk about the most important things, to talk about life and death and eating and believing and eternal life. And so this is what we think it means. To eat means to believe. That's what Jesus is talking about here. To eat means to believe. To believe in what? Well, let's flesh it out a little bit. Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of John in verse 14 of chapter 1. And you'll remember it. It's a very striking description. It says, the word became flesh. There's that word, flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The significance of that statement, the word becoming flesh, is that the eternal becomes finite in the moment of the earth. That the eternal takes on human flesh and is now recognized by that flesh with the body of a human. It is in this body that one could display the personhood of God to the world. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. If you want to know what God looks like, look to the one who is in the flesh, Jesus. He is the God-man. And so the notion that Jesus has flesh is the notion that, and when we consume that flesh, is the idea that you believe in his actual existence and his true material nature as fully God and fully man. He wasn't just a prophet that came to give food. He was the eternal God in flesh who is food. And so that's why he says, eat my flesh. There's also this idea of bread that is going all throughout this chapter that's really interesting. We're at the time of the Passover where they eat unleavened bread. <laughs> Jesus feeds people, 5,000 people plus women and children with bread. Then he tells them to look for food that never perishes. The Pharisees ask for a sign like bread, manna from heaven, to prove what he's saying to be true. And Jesus says, if you eat that bread from heaven, you're going to die. There's better bread from heaven that will give you eternal life. And then he goes on to describe, I am the bread. <laughs> and you can consume it. And so what's happening here? The physical act of eating, combined with the miracles about eating, combined with the metaphor of eating, all of this is wound together in this vivid picture that leads to Jesus' main point. And we see it probably most clearly in the parallel of two verses of the passage. So we're going to have them up here on the screen for you for a minute. Consider this with me. Consider how similar these are. In John 6, 40, earlier in the passage, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
And here in, John, in verse 54, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So in the first one, whoever looks to the Son and believes, eternal life raise up. In the second one, whoever feeds and drinks has eternal life, and I will raise him up. What's happening is quite obvious, right? He's using the second one to describe the first one. He's using the idea of eating to describe what it looks like to believe. Augustine of Hippo wrote regarding this statement, Believe, and you have eaten. Or you could say it in the reverse. Eat, <laughs> feed on the Lord Jesus, and you have believed. To eat the flesh and to drink the blood of Jesus is, is the ongoing active belief in him that leads to eternal life. To eat and to drink, to feed on Jesus is another way of saying I have an ongoing active belief in him that leads me all the way to eternal life. And so it's important to note the language that Jesus is using. If he's giving us such a vivid picture that's seemingly bizarre in its nature, it's important to look specifically at the language at how this belief takes hold and what it means. It's directed both toward who he is and toward what he does. You see that the bread of life is Jesus, and Jesus is giving himself as the bread. It becomes quite clear that he's talking about sacrifice, isn't he? He's talking about the nature of self-sacrifice that will be coming on the cross. And verse 53 not only talks about eating flesh, but it also talks about drinking blood. Now, to eat bread or to eat flesh has the connotation of something that's nourishing and life-giving in its nature, but, but to shed blood has almost the opposite connotation. Blood isn't shed unless somebody dies. <laughs> and so in the same description, Jesus is talking about giving life while he's also talking about his very own death. And he does so a variety of ways, one of which is in verse 51. Look at it with me if you have your Bible open. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about sacrificing for the life of the world. <laughs> In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John eleven fifty one. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. John 15, 13, Jesus says again, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And perhaps the greatest description of his sacrifice and what it means 
is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. It's on the screen behind me. The writer of Hebrews, comparing the sacrifice of the Old Testament law to the sacrifice of Jesus and their effectiveness, writes this. He says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That means these types of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament law were cleansing by the law. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what is Jesus calling us to do here? He's calling us to believe in an ongoing sense, to believe in a person, himself, and to believe in what he does. That he did not come just to give bread, but to, ge- to be bread, not just to give drink, but to be drink. And by believing in him, you believe something about what he does. You believe that he gives life, and the way that he gives life is by offering himself to death. That's the core of the metaphor, and it's the core of the gospel. What it means for us is that ongoing, active belief in Jesus leads to eternal life. And I use those phrases specifically. Ongoing, active belief leads to eternal life. And so let's think for a minute together about what it means for us. What does it mean for you that Jesus uses this way of describing belief in him? Well, first it means keep believing. (laughs) If eating means believing, and we're commanded to keep eating, then we are commanded to keep believing, (laughs) and doing so in an active sense. And it begs the question, well, how can I do that? Well, let's make a couple observations. Observation number one, it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes to keep believing. It's hard when you look at the circumstances of your life, when you look at the circumstances of your world, when you look at the pressures of the culture around us. It can be hard sometimes to keep believing. When you, as you grow and change through the seasons and the years, you hear people say this from time to time, that I know more than I used to know, I've experienced more than I used to experience, and I no longer can just sort of embrace things with a childlike affection or childlike faith. I see the gray areas of our culture more significantly now than ever before, and it's hard to keep clinging to him. It's hard to keep believing. That struggle is is real. But the good news is that anyone can eat. The lowest person can eat. (laughs) The sinner of sinners can eat. The one who has been distant or apathetic or even an enemy of God can eat. Jesus bids you to come and to eat and by eating to live. I mean, maybe some of us have at one time or another tasted and seen that he was good. We have been feeding on him, but over the course of time, we've seen that we've wandered astray or that our hearts have grown cold toward him or that we have stopped feeding in this way for some reason or another. The great news here is that anybody can eat. And he 
forbids you to come back to the table and to feast on him. It's interesting, another observation is that not only can anyone eat, but everyone must eat if you want to continue to live. Look at verse 53 with me. He says it as plainly as he can. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat and drink, you have no life in you. That's the negative expression of the gospel of God. That the positive expression is, eat and have eternal life. (laughs) The negative expression is, if you don't eat, you will have no life in you. And God wants you to eat. Not to trust in your ability to be a good person or a moral person or to navigate on your own, but to trust in the one who can save you because you are not. (laughs) You know, a friend of mine is a pastor in a small town north of Chicago, Illinois, called Zion. Zion, Illinois. And you might guess, with a name like Zion, Illinois, that this town was founded by a preacher. Reverend John Alexander Dowie left little to chance a century ago when the charismatic preacher founded the city of Zion as a carefully ordered city of religious utopia. And the first act upon its founding was he immediately outlawed sin. Now that sounds like both a great idea and a terrible idea at the same time. Because God already outlawed sin. (laughs) But from the beginning, of course, of this town, it was proved that pure legalism can't produce godly people. And Reverend Dowie should have known that the law only confirms our sinnerhood. (laughs) Or the law only confirms that we are outlawed. We should make laws, but laws don't change the heart. Only Christ can change hearts and form law-abiding spiritual citizens. And this happens through ongoing belief, through feeding on Jesus, through receiving ongoing nourishment that he gives. This is what happens as he's changing you. He's giving you new life and ever more so as you keep feeding on him. Here's another observation about the metaphor, and that is, you know, we make time to eat. And we eat multiple times a day. Some of you are going to leave church this morning, and you are going to make time to eat this afternoon. And then you're probably going to make time to eat again later on tonight, probably around 6.30 p.m. And... That is part of your rhythm. It's part of your schedule. It's part of the way that you continue to receive nourishment. And there's a very real sense in which Jesus confronts the idea of a one-time decision from him and then going on your way. Everyday belief is what following Jesus engages us in. And how amazing is it that the food is always available? Sometimes I make time to eat at 9.30 at night and I go to the fridge to see what's going on in there and I go, nothing I really want in here right now. But not so with the Lord Jesus. The food is always available whenever we want to eat. 
And the benefits found therein are amazing. This is not just going to feed on him when you're in crisis. It's not just going on to feed on him when you have need. It's not just going to feed on him when you need money. It's not just going to feed on him when your health is poor. It's also feeding on him in this ongoing sense when things are really good, when you want ongoing growth and nourishment. He makes himself available to you to be in regular and ongoing fellowship with each and every one who engages in ongoing belief in him. And one of the great benefits of this is that you can be sure that he never leaves you nor forsakes you. He leads you all the way to eternal life, he says. And between then and now, the secondary benefit is that he leads you on that path, not just to eternal life, but on the path along the way, as he leads you through life. Some of you know that one of my favorite things to do is to go skiing. And I wonder if you've ever been skiing before and been surprised to see a blind person skiing. You ever seen a blind skier before? <laughs> Get out of the way. <laughs> blind skiers wear a very bright vest so everybody could, and it says blind skier right on the back of it, so everybody can identify them as blind and stay out of their way. And as they go down the mountain, they typically have somebody skiing right in front of them, two, three, four, five yards in front of them, and audibly calling out the turns. Turn this direction, turn this way, and as so, the person who's leading the blind skier allows them to make their way down the mountain. That's what it means. It's a great word picture of remaining or abiding or feeding on Jesus in the same way as he leads you through this life. You are a bunch of blind skiers, and so am I. And there's someone who calls the turns for us. You know, another observation about, about feeding on Jesus is that we relish eating, don't we? There's a sense in which we relish it, some of us more than others, quite obviously. We live in a time and in a way that we don't eat just for sustenance, though sometimes that's the case. We really enjoy what we eat. <laughs> I wonder if we think about our relishing, our belief in God through his son in that way. Spurgeon once said, a hungry man never gets rid of his hunger by talking about eating. I wonder if some of us just talk about eating. <laughs> but never actually enjoy the taste of it. Something we can relish. And finally, by way of observation, this feeding on Jesus produces a unique union with him. Look at verse 56. Verse 56, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What happens when you eat? Well, you receive food into your body. It becomes absorbed as it's being digested, and it actually becomes a part of you. The food you eat becomes a part of you. So too it is with your ongoing belief in Jesus. If you keep feeding on him, he continues to grow you and grow in you. 
And you are found to be in him. He changes you. He provides for you. He gives you a new outlook on life. He gives you a different type of strength to fight sin. This ongoing feeding and abiding dynamic creates comfort and joy and strength that only comes when you feed on him. He becomes your grounding. He becomes your point of connection. I love the word picture that we could use to describe this of the city of San Francisco. Did you know that one of the safest places to be in the city of San Francisco during an earthquake is to be in the center of the Golden Gate Bridge? That's not typically the place that I would think to go during the middle of an earthquake. But in the center of the Golden Gate Bridge, they say that the bridge can withstand probably an earthquake of about 9.0 on the Richter scale. That's a magnificent structure. It will not fall for two reasons. One, because it's incredibly flexible. It sways back and forth. And two, because it is an incredible feat of cantilever and suspension together in construction. Every bit of concrete, every bit of pavement, every bit of steel in the entire bridge all relates to another piece in it. And finally, all of those related pieces are making their way to two large cables. And the two large cables to the two great piers. And the two great piers that go down into the bedrock of the earth and to the anchors on each side of it. That's the genius of a suspension bridge. Every single piece of metal, every single piece of concrete is preoccupied with each other that all leads it back to its foundation and it's satisfied with the foundation. And so you don't see these big, huge cables going off the bridge to the Transamerica Tower or to the redwood trees in Marin County. You don't have that because they're rooted in, they're trusting in, they're designed to be in the rock. That's what it means to be an ongoing belief in Jesus. That's what it means, as Jesus says, to build your house on a rock, not on the sand. That's what it means to, to be the branches that are connected to the vine. That's what it means to feed on him. To abide in him, to be united with him. Every single bit of you connected to the other that is connected to him. And that's what happens in a church as well. When you have all of these disconnected people who are all in somehow proximity to each other. And they're all feeding on him and abiding on him and therefore then connected to him in the same way. Friends, the invitation for you is to eat. To feast. And not just to feast once. To feast every day, multiple times a day for your entire life. Ongoing, active belief in Jesus leads to eternal life. And so with that, let's pray together and celebrate God's goodness in this way. Father, thank you so much that as we recognize this ongoing and active belief, using these vivid word pictures that you help us to see and to know what it means to be a believer. And we thank you that, we are, that it is not completely dependent upon us, 
that you, Lord Jesus, never let us go. That you, Father God, draw us to the table. That in eating of the Lord, that we abide in him and abide in him forever. I pray today that you would help us to have great joy in this. I pray today that we would think about the week ahead differently now. That our belief has some implications to it. I pray, God, that you would give us a great appetite for this type of food and that you would continue to root us in your Son as the Savior. We pray. Amen.